Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Today's episode is a conversation with Francois Lenuin, also known as Frankie. He is the general manager of Entrepreneur First. And Entrepreneur First is a global organization that invests in talent. And so we kind of start out by learning about what Entrepreneur First is, how they invest in talent, and also more deeper into Frankie's experience of actually launching the program in Canada as a general manager. We also dig into Frankie's fascinating career, starting as a teenage entrepreneur, running a web development business before university, and then to spending six years of his career in product management in Montreal as well as Singapore. And then the transition from going from the product manager to joining Entrepreneur First in Singapore, and then the decision to come back to Canada. Given my fascination with investing in people, we explore Frankie's experience with identifying talent throughout his time at Entrepreneur First, how the program helps produce successful teams of co-founders as well as companies, and some of the characteristics that tie in the successful teams of the past and what Frankie's seen from his experience as well as his learnings. And we also cover much more in the extent of the conversation. This was honestly a really fun conversation for me and something that I kind of came out with a lot of learnings. So I hope it's as valuable to you. And please now tune in to my conversation with Frankie. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is a interview episode and my guest today is Frankie Lenuin. He is the general manager at Entrepreneur First. Frankie, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. And to kind of start off with, you know, like we we talked about how this is a new, relatively new experience for you, not a common one, because you are on the other side being interviewed by someone than other than the other way around. And to give our, I think, audience a little more understanding of, yeah, like what this this guy do, what is Entrepreneur First? Can you kind of start off by just giving us like a high level overview of what is Entrepreneur First? Like, what is this organization, and what does it mean to be a general manager of the company? Yeah. So, so talent, uh, Entrepreneur First is a talent investor, um, and what that means is invest instead of investing into companies, teams, or ideas. Uh, what we do is invest into individuals. Um, we find people before they have their idea, before they have the team. Uh, before they have their business and help them find co-founders, help them build a company and invest in the best companies that come out of the program. Um, it started out, I guess, on the premise that the world is missing out on its best founders. Because if you think of, um, I guess, your most impressive friends as you grew up in school, um, typically they wouldn't necessarily start a company. They'd go into investment banking, they go into research, uh, go into management consulting, for instance. And I think uh, now it's starting to move a bit more towards tech, as in like some people are joining tech companies. But for you to start your very own from scratch is a very outlawry thing to do. Um, it's very rare that you will, you know, come out of school and start a company. Um, it doesn't really, like that path doesn't really exist for anywhere else but like Silicon Valley. Um, but I think the, the premise that we're trying to go on with is that um, 
it can't be that all the best entrepreneurs in the world come from Silicon Valley. Uh, there must be talent elsewhere, and we strongly believe they do. But, but why don't they start companies? Um, there are a lot of, I guess, barriers and frictions in order to do so. So if you think of uh, social barriers or cultural barriers or financial barriers, um, having people who are like-minded, having mentors, having investors, having people who believe in you, the mindset uh, to enable you to succeed doesn't really exist everywhere. And so what we're trying to do is build uh, networks of people, networks of capital, networks of investors and uh, coaches and advisors to help people de-risk the path to entrepreneurship. Um, so we're not I, obviously removing all the risks, we're just making it a tiny bit easier so that if you're thinking about it, that you have the skill set, but you just needed the nudge uh, that we go out and find you and help you build that company. Got it. And to kind of get a better idea of, of the model of the organization, um, it's I think if we think about the kind of incubators or accelerators that help entrepreneurs kind of grow the company, like I think the the big daddy there is, you know, Y Combinator, the Harvard yeah. of startups, as people call it. But it seems like yeah. for Entrepreneur First, it you guys start like earlier in the phase than like YC would, right? Because YC, I think when you apply, yeah, you have to already have some formation of a company. But it seems like you're focusing it's on people. need a co-founder. Yeah. yeah. But you've, yeah, so a lot of people, people will, will ask us, like, how we compete with accelerators. We actually think we partner with them. Mm. Um, so if you think of the timeline to, to starting a company, we go from the very beginning, before you have the idea, before you have a company, before you have a co-founder. Um, and so the, the idea there is that our, our business model is that in, in order to de-risk that, we essentially pay people to quit their jobs. Um, mm. And uh, in doing so, we enable people who might not necessarily have the, the highest risk tolerance, but have still a pretty high risk tolerance to be able to take that, uh, that bet on themselves, that, that risk to, to see what they're capable of. Because if you think of like the cost of time, it's, it's incredibly high, right? Um, if you were to ask, uh, I don't know, if you have a partner or your family to give your, you know, to, to for like a year or two to go out and bootstrap a company, that's a hugely high cost. Um, and so having these, the time and structure of something like Entrepreneur First, where Within three months of starting the program, you have a, a real tangible outcome. You know whether or not that we were we will uh, back you for for the life of your company um, is a really high value driver. Being able to to mitigate the cost by just saying three months of time is all I need to prove whether or not I can do this um, is quite exciting. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of touched upon like the backing part. So then entrepreneur first. Yeah. It's it seems like it works. It has like a component that is like a venture fund as well then, right? Like you sure. help create these companies yeah. and then I guess the best that survive will get backing yeah. from the organization. Is that how it works? Yeah, so so we still work as a venture fund model. Uh, we have LPs and we're able to um, to, to write checks at a pre-seed level. I guess the unit in which we invest is different from most venture capitalists. So instead of investing into teams or uh, companies, we invest into individuals. Um, think of it as buying an option into someone's career. Um, essentially what that option buys is should you build something that, that's exciting um, and form a team that we really want to back, that we have the right to invest uh, at a discount uh, compared to what other venture capitalists would have to pay for that same amount of equity. Got um, it. Yeah. And right now your title is the general manager at Entrepreneur First in Canada. Yes. And I think the also one, the unique thing was about this organization is that you guys are kind of global. You guys have various yes. uh, offices all over the world and various teams and I'm guessing different general managers with each region. Um, can you yeah. kind of talk about like what your role as a general manager is in at Entrepreneur yeah. First Canada? Yeah, so um, I started up uh, at Entrepreneur First in a different role. So I've, I've had a few different roles throughout my time. I'm happy to share about that. 
Um, now what I'm doing as a general manager is building a new office from scratch. So building a new team, building a new culture, being able to set up operations and literally doing everything sort of like being a founder actually uh, and, and setting us up in the first North American site and North American office. Uh, but my role as a whole is to be able to find the founding team to actually build our program and set it up for success. So what that means is hiring a full-time team of seven people, um, hiring advisors and coaches, uh, building partnerships with institutions to help us uh, create more awareness and build credibility within an ecosystem. Because obviously with a, as a new entrant, it takes time to build trust. Um, and in the end, be able to produce uh, world-changing companies. Um, if you think of, I guess, uh, what EF does is we take individuals and we build amazing companies and help them get funded by the best investors in the world. And we do so every six months in, in all our locations. Um, so it's a pretty, I guess, uh, uh, high pace and a, a high bar to meet, uh, but very excited to do so. And we're launching our first cohort in September of this year. Awesome. And when, when did yeah. the actual kind of planning and everything start um, when, you, just, when you, know, you and the organization decided, let's, let's launch one in Canada? Yeah, um, a long time ago. So it started, uh, I mean, we've been looking at an expansion for a while now because uh, this is obviously not our first international expansion. Our first one occurred in 2016. So we've been launching new sites for a long time and we're now in six active locations around the world. So the planning for the Canadian site in particular started um, mid last year. Um, and while I was still gen uh, the general manager in Singapore. Um, so for a bit of time, I was actually double hatting as both GM of Singapore and Canada. Uh, and I just moved over three months ago, but it's been in the works for, for well over six months. Got it. And, to, you know, I, I want to start like appreciating how difficult this might actually be. And so can you kind of take me through like, what, what actually goes in? Like, what's the kind of step-by-step -step process you kind of have to go through to launch a brand new program? Like, what, what was it like for you? Like saying like, okay, let's uh, launch it in Canada. Yeah, how does that start? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole list of like, uh, there's a checklist, right, of things that we need to do in order to, uh, to start. I mean, like, I won't bore you with, like, the actual finance and ops of it. But generally speaking, what you want to be able to do is, one, hire a founding team, two, build partnerships, uh, robust ones that will enable you to succeed for the long run, and three, uh, recruitment, um, as in finding the, the entrepreneurs that will start the program. Um, and it takes time, as in, like, you can imagine that, like, someone, and the typical, I guess, candidate for us is someone who's already working in a job, working in a pretty high-impact role, um, and making, you know, a sizable amount of money. Uh, and so convincing them to quit their jobs is not an easy feat and convincing 50 of them to do so every six months is really not an easy feat either. So there's a lot of work that get, gets, into, uh, gets put into place. But generally speaking, a lot of it is around uh, hiring the founding team and building partnerships in order to help you um, operate uh, for, well uh, in the long run to be able to have partners to help you succeed. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it seems like when I kind of, when I glossed over, you know, your career journey up to this point, um, the, yeah. you know, you, you, it seems like you spend a lot of time in the technology industry. Like you, the, you know, you've worked in a lot of fast growing startups, like you've worked with entrepreneurs yeah. at entrepreneur first. And it seems like that kind of area, like you've always been kind of passionate in that sphere of the world. Um, and, and I learned that you studied finance and marketing in Concordia. So how in Concordia university, and I believe that's in Quebec, right? Yeah, and you yeah, you were born Montreal. and raised in Montreal. Um, yeah, and so you're like right now you're talking to me out of Montreal because of COVID. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm curious like how how did that all kind of come about? Like, did you always have a knack for like you know you always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and then you thought business was the way to go, or did it kind of blossom while you were in Concordia? Uh, so yeah, there's a there's a pretty long backstory to this. So I'll try to keep it short. Um, I actually haven't 
thought of it really until I joined Entrepreneur First and they were asking me like why entrepreneurship because I um, actually between Concordia and when I started um, entrepreneur or working at Entrepreneur First there was not a lot of entrepreneurship there was a lot of product management in terms of helping companies build and scale internet uh, based products and mm-hmm. I can talk a bit about that uh, but the I guess like the starting point for me was actually when I was a teenager um, at age 13 I started building computers for my friends and my family. I became pretty good at it and started charging people money. But I wasn't very good at business, so I actually didn't make any money. I lost a bit of money, actually, sometimes because I didn't charge enough. (laughs) Uh, But then I eventually uh, started making uh, computers for my high school lab. Um, And from there, I got into uh, web development and web design. And so I uh, had freelancers in India, the Philippines, and Europe help me out build uh, businesses, sorry, websites for businesses in, in Montreal. So we built websites for like uh, elementary schools, restaurants, uh, law firms, et cetera. Some of them are still actually up. Um, so I, I did that. And from there, I pivoted to into web hosting. So I essentially rented out like servers and then sold web hosting to people um, and this is all like as a teenager so technically not not super legal so I shouldn't really share too much about this um, but I, I did it I guess like while being a student and just trying to like I don't know make money um, and so that started pretty early and uh, I guess towards like age 17 age 18 I started making bigger bets I tried like a music streaming website I tried a dating website um, and started putting in more money to, to try and make it, you know, a success. And um, I actually worked on a lot of this with my best friend at the time. And I have a video of him and I doing a, a pack together saying that uh, by the time we finished university, he also went to Concordia, by the time we finished university, that we'd make enough money that we wouldn't ever have to work a full-time job. Mm. Um, and so, so unfortunately for me, that pack never um, was realized because at age 17 or 18, I ended up owing my parents uh, roughly $20,000, uh, which is not a place you want to be in if you have tiger Asian parents. Um, and so it, it created a pretty large emotional scar for me. And so um, I think like after getting into that debt, I, I kind of went back to a more cookie cutter type of life in terms of like uh, something safer, something more job oriented. But I, I still wanted it to be related to entrepreneurship. So I chose product management as the discipline because I would be able to learn and how to build and scale products from a more structured approach. And I, I, I did so for six years. Uh, but during those six years, like it was very much like trying to build my craft as a product manager and not an entrepreneur. And it was only in the last three years that I've re- like visited the entrepreneurial route. Um, so it's kind of like full circle, but not obvious uh, along the way. Got it. And yeah. do, do you mind kind of sharing like what uh, would result to it in like the $20,000 debt? Like what happened? There? Um, just like buying a domain that I shouldn't have bought, uh, buying scripts I shouldn't have bought, working with freelancers who uh, didn't pan out, like wow. just a lot of stuff like that. And, and, and also server costs and all that. Because uh, like the cost of building a company in, uh, 2005 2006 very different from what it is today right um that's yeah, crazy people don't realize yeah yeah, yeah. Like, honestly like, yeah like i i didn't realize that either like i was talking to um an entrepreneur who used to run like a app-based company and he was telling me yeah like the even the cost to run, have this app on the server and host all the data costs thousands of thousands of dollars every month and i was like yeah. really i had yeah. no idea that's super expensive yeah, and it's no crazy that you did that as a team no, yeah very I mean, I didn't think it was crazy. I was just trying to make money. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, I don't, I don't, it's funny because I, uh, I, I, I talk to outliers all the time um, at EF. Um, and funny enough, like they don't think of themselves as outliers. They just think of it as normal. Right. Um, whereas if you, if you look at them in comparison to people, it's very different and very unusual, but they don't think so themselves. Right. And, you know, you, you said you spent, you know, then afterwards, after university, like six years in product management, yeah. but I don't think we can just yeah. gloss over that either because <laughs> it's, at least from my experience, the even the notion of product management at least wasn't very clear. Like it wasn't no. even very obvious that that was even a career. No, I had option. no idea what I was doing. I had to Google my um, my title when I first started. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, so yeah, so you start. It seemed like you started your kind of full time career um, at Lightspeed HQ. Which, yeah. um, please correct me if I'm wrong. Like my understanding is that it's a tech SaaS company that services small medium businesses in the restaurant industry yeah. it seems that they do the kind of full gamut not, not just restaurants so retail retail, uh, retail first yeah gotcha yeah. and so you you were there for about two years as a product yeah. manager and yeah. was was the tech uh kind of environment always interesting for you even when you're in university because you studied finance and marketing like i feel I like it'd be so obvious or not obvious but it would be commonplace for people to kind of get pulled into the world of professional services you know like the investment yeah. banking management consulting we talked about MCG. yeah yeah <laughs> what was it yeah, i mean yeah. it wasn't an obvious path um so i have to think about it a bit because like uh I, I now realize that there are a few cues that that led to it but it wasn't obvious to me so uh one of the cues is that i worked at apple um so my my part-time job as a student uh while building all these businesses just so in order to fund myself or at least like partially was to work at apple and I, I was one of the people behind the genius bar fixing uh, your iPhone. Uh, so I did that for three years. Um, so that, that had a very big influence in terms of seeing how tech could impact people's lives. And obviously Apple is great at like building culture um, and like, you know, bringing you into that mindset. And so I like, I mean, I, it's, it's a bit of a cult, but at the same time, like if you believe it, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, and being able to be, to experience that at scale, meaning thousands of people using products and helping them through that, it kind of ingrained in me that like tech can have an impact. Um, I mean, obviously I was an employee and not an entrepreneur or anything, but it did, did give me that insight. And so I think that was one of the cues, but it wasn't an obvious one. So my, my story with Lightspeed is um, I was in business school and one of my extracurricular things was to organize a case competition. It was called JMUCC. Um, where we brought in 24 schools from around the world uh, to compete on, on business case studies. And my job as the organizing team member was to bring in sponsorship because it cost uh, quite a bit of money to run, um, run the, the competition. And my, my number to hit uh, for sponsorship was bringing in 100K, uh, which is not a, a small amount of money. Yeah. Um, and so part of my, uh, like most of my extracurricular time was going on and pitching this case comp to people and how it would bring value to their orgs or how it would bring, you know, a talent pool that they can hire from. Um, and so I targeted Lightspeed as a, a potential case sponsor, and they did. They were one of the largest sponsors. And I think from there, having been involved with them, having, uh, I guess, like, uh, having them seen my uh, stakeholder management and how I worked with it, I think I generated enough trust for them to give me a shot. And I think that was my in. And so it wasn't an obvious path to to product management. And like I said, my my first week on the job, I had to literally Google what product management was because at the time, like it really was not like a, I still think it's not a very well-known discipline. Um, yeah. And we can go into why uh, yeah, <laughs> later on. Well, I think it'd be, it'd be cool. Like, yeah, can you touch on like why? Why do you not think it's a very well understood discipline? 
refund because that it's it's a job that every single tech company has a position for yet if you go to university there's no way to study it right which makes no sense um and i think it's just born out of necessity as opposed to having been uh, thought of carefully right and so product managers across the world are often stumbling into their roles not necessarily knowing that's what they're doing um, and so there are new structures to like really help uh, like evangelize and educate people, but it's not formal, right? There's mind the product, uh, general assembly, brain station, product school, all these things are like great, but like none of them are institutionalized and like it's all like for the job, like on the job kind of thing. Um, and so it's a very weird role where it's super high impact yet hard to get into and people don't actually know how to get into it. Yes, yeah, it seems like like um, I, I explored the role of product management before in the past and I have a lot of friends who are kind of currently very curious of getting in, but everyone kind of talks about the kind of uh, you know, it's like the uh, chicken and the egg situation where most product management jobs want five years of product management, but no one wants yeah. to give you a chance to become a product manager. And then there's also, yeah. you know, various other big tech companies. I think, I don't know if Google still has this rule where you have to have an engineer background to become a product manager. It used to be a rule, but they've relaxed it since. Okay. Uh, it used to be a typical thing where like you're a software engineer, you go get an MBA and then that's your route into product. I don't think that's uh, the only way anymore. Um, so just to give you a bit of like uh, a caveat on this, like I do teach product management at General Assembly to, to students as like a part-time thing. And a lot of students ask me this question, like, how did, how do you break in? Mm -hmm. It's like, so there's no like clear path to break in. I think, um, if you're lucky enough to work for a, for a company where there is a product management function already, what I would suggest is for you to try and get involved and help that product manager out. Uh, because the nature of product management is that you will never be able to make decisions with 100% clarity. You typically will only have 30, 40, 50%. And so the more information, the more research, the more analysis you have, the more confidence you have in your decision. And so if you could help out with that decision-making process, like please like please do uh, from, <laughs> as being a product manager. So whether that means like doing more user research or doing data analysis or triaging and prioritizing tickets from uh, an engineering point of view, there's a lot of work that can be done by other members on the team that will help the product manager and that will build trust. Um, and hopefully in doing that, you build your skill set as well. So that's definitely one way to go in, but there's a few caveats and requirements there. Like one, you need to one have a product management team and then two, eventually have a, an opening in, on the team in order to get that role. Um, so that's, I mean, not true of every company. So I, I, if I were to like start again fresh um, and uh, I guess like with COVID, there's been a number of people in my surroundings that have lost their jobs and many of them are asking me like, how do I break in? Um, I would say that my advice is actually not to, especially because it's, it's very long and difficult in order to break in internally. What I would do is just pick a problem uh, that you observe in your life and try to solve it and try to solve it with as much um, doing your doing as much uh, of it yourself as possible. Like don't, don't build like the, the number one mistake you can do is build right away. Like, uh, like products don't fail because the, the, you know, it wasn't solved proper. It wasn't solved well. It products failed because it was the wrong problem to begin with. Right. Um, and so validating whether or not a problem exists is something that you can do on your own without any need of like technical skill. And so if all you do is you go out, you do your user research, you prioritize what you learn, you share uh, about it, more importantly, you write about it and you, you create like a, a following or a thought leadership around it. I think that's the easiest way to get into product because there is that chicken and egg problem. And a lot of the skills that are needed for product are soft skills like stakeholder management. Um, or prioritization or being able to, you know, demonstrate, like it's not easy to demonstrate that during a, an interview. Whereas if you have like a full blog of all the different things you've learned, all the mistakes you've made over time, I think that's a lot more convincing for a hiring manager. And people love reading about failure stories, right? So it doesn't even matter if you fail, as long as you learn and you write about it. 
Um, and so if I were to start again, that's what I would do personally, but that's take that, you know, with a grain of salt. Yeah, no, but I, I think that's extremely very valuable. Like I think it's, it's the idea of doing the work first, right. And showing the ability to do work before you just showing go around. Thinking. Just, yeah. yeah. Instead of just going around saying, give me the work and then I'll pr- prove it to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we also kind of glossed over the the element of you working at Apple and you kind of touched upon how it's kind of a little cult-like and you have a unique culture. Can you kind of talk about like what, what actually goes on like for people that work in like the genius part? Like what, what's, what are some yeah, like as in, stories as in, like, of culture there? Yeah. So I think what Apple nailed very well um, is that they understand what the job is to be done. So if you think of like um, uh, jobs, I, I, so, so caveat of jobs to be done is a framework around like breaking down jobs into emotional, social, um, and functional, but a lot of people focus on the function as opposed to the emotional and the social. I think Apple nailed the emotional and the social. So what I mean by that is um, people don't buy a laptop because they want processing speed and more RAM and more hard drive space. They, they buy it because either they want to play a game and they want to be a, a thought leader on Twitch um, or they want to like, you know, share photo albums with their family because they want to be able to share memories. So like the, the job to be done is very rarely functional, but emotional and social. And Apple really nailed it by being able to, like, for instance, like every single morning working at the team, you would have something called a daily download where they go through, yes, the numbers and how we're doing, uh, you know, uh, for the current day. But more importantly, they ask you to bring up stories on how you changed someone's life, uh, how you went above and beyond to help a person through their day and, how, and what you did to like contribute to, to moving them forward and bettering them. And because it's ingrained on a daily basis and because you're being coached and trained on not how to sell, you know, a piece of hardware, but being able to sell the ability to share memories, the ability to create movies, the ability to be creative, the ability to, to feel, uh, you know, special. Um, that is a very different way of positioning and selling than uh, function. So I think Apple really mm-hmm. nailed that well and it helped me uh, later on in my career as well. Wow. And yeah. so did, does, it, does it like start like every morning where you have like the... Yeah. store magic they call the, the daily download yeah yeah wow <laughs> that's crazy and yeah i don't know if i can actually share any of this but i'm pretty sure you could find any of this online it's pretty easy yeah, yeah. I, I imagine like people probably talk about it. like it's, it's apple it's one of the biggest companies in the world <laughs> people are probably yeah. fascinated to look, learn more and so then after lightspeed you went to uh you moved over to singapore where you were a product manager yeah. at multiple startups before eventually yeah. joining entrepreneur first um yeah what how did that move like facilitate like did you always want to go to, to singapore? singapore yeah Okay. Uh, yeah. So the, I guess like during my undergrad, I had the chance to go to Singapore on exchange. Mm. Um, why Singapore? I had chosen a number of different places, Barcelona and New Zealand being the others. Um, I basically chose Singapore because it was a mixture of like being as far away as possible, but also a good school. So there wasn't much more thought than that. Um, I think playing it back now, I'll, I'll add more thought, but at the time it wasn't really well thought. Um, so I won't lie there, but Essentially, I, I spent six months in Singapore, and during that time, I traveled a lot around Southeast Asia. I'm also Vietnamese in terms of my heritage, and so being able to, uh, you know, do the millennial thing and discover yourself uh, was uh, one of the experiences I got to, to live. It was definitely typical of a millennial, but also very genuine. I think it's a big theme in my life now as well. Um, so I spent six months there and then came back, um, ended up working for Lightspeed, spent two years there. Um, and after two years, I had the chance to move to Singapore, which was a no-brainer for me. Um, and so I took the plunge, and that was roughly five years ago. Yeah. And when you say like the chance came, like were you actively looking to apply to jobs? Yeah, Singapore? right, right. So, right. So I was actively looking for a number of years already. I remember my first, oh, okay. actually, even before starting uh, Lightspeed, um, I had met 
one of the execs at um, Lightspeed, uh, JP, who worked in Singapore. And I saw that on his LinkedIn. I kept on asking him, like, are you going to open up an office? Like, this is before I even joined the company. Like, I had hinted <laughs> it for a long time that I wanted to do this. This isn't, that was, it was not, you know, uh, a secret that I had. I made it very abundantly clear that I wanted to move back to, to Asia. Um, so, I mean, it didn't happen with Lightspeed, but I, I was looking. Um, and a big, big, big part of it also is that uh, I guess like there's a lot of backstory here, but uh, my partner is also, um, so I met my partner on exchange in Singapore. She's also from Montreal, but we were very lucky to, to have met in Singapore. Um, and she decided to, to move first. We had always talked about going. Um, and so technically I, I was the trailing spouse, so to speak. Uh, so I followed, I followed her and very, very proud to have. Um, and so it was both a personal, uh, personal in terms of like wanting to discover my roots, personal because of my partner, and then professional as well because um, I think it's it's less known in North America, but it's Southeast Asia is one of the most dynamic and fast-growing places in the world. Um, and so being able to ride waves of opportunities, and I can talk a lot about that as well, um, is just placing yourself where the action is um, mm -hmm. is uh, usually a pretty smart move in terms of your career. Mm -hmm. And you. You know, you spent a number of years in Singapore, and then yeah. you decided to come back to uh, Canada. But what what was that decision like then? Like, why didn't you want to stay further and build up more of your career roots in Singapore? Why come back? Yeah, um, I think coming back was primarily for the opportunity, but also having then spent five years away from family. So mm. while I was exploring, I guess like the depths of like my heritage in Vietnam and spending time there, I was also missing my family here and I also have aging grandparents. And so there are a lot of personal reasons, again, for moving back. But I don't think that this move is necessarily one that's going to last forever. I think I'm yeah. here for a few years to make sure that EF is a success and that I, you know, reconnect with my family and I, I build a, a strong relationship with them. Uh, but there's a very, very high chance. And again, everyone at Entrepreneurs knows this uh, within a few years that I'll be potentially moving back to Asia. I don't know when, I don't know when, uh, wh where, could be Vietnam, could be Singapore. Um, but just to give you, I guess, like the, the decision-making process, um, being able to build a new office from scratch, a new team, a new culture, um, and having seen like founders go through our program and what learnings they go through when they put themselves out of their comfort zone it made me really want to like desire that type of ambiguity and that type of uh, risk and, and exposure. And so I came very well knowing that it would be very, very difficult, not knowing what that COVID would hit. So, and so, so just, just, you can imagine it's even more difficult. Like imagine <laughs> building a new company from scratch when like you have to convince people to quit their jobs over zoom, right? That's right. not like a, not a normal thing to do. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, the, the more, it, you know, the more stacked against you, the more you learn, the faster you learn. Uh, so I've been very grateful to have learned a ton. Yeah, I bet <laughs> over the last few. Months. And yeah. how how did the initial um, transition in Singapore happen? Where you went from you know working in a startup to joining Entrepreneur yep. First was the idea? Yep. I believe like I think I read or learned that you joined first as a entrepreneur in residence at EF. So so the story with EF for me was that I was actually recruited into the cohort, um, and I say this to most people because. I know what it's like to be asked to quit your job um, in order to, to potentially join a program. Um, and I didn't join the program for two main reasons. Uh, so one, because at the time, most of our founders were technical. And while I consider myself like technically conversant um, and I can code, I, I wouldn't call myself technical by any means. And so one, I don't think I would have actually made it though I was halfway through the interview funnel. So that's one reason. Uh, the second reason is that my partner uh, at that time and still is, uh, she's a social entrepreneur. And so 
um, Singapore having a crazy high cost of living, which is worse than Toronto, um, both of us being on an entrepreneur salary, uh, aka zero, um, would have been very, very, very difficult. And so we decided to, to only go one at a time. Uh, but uh, now having heard my past, I'm sure you know that eventually I'll, I'll start again. Um, so, but I, I, I loved EF's mission and I really related to it and it reconnected me with my 17 year old self. And so um, it, it was a, so, so one of, um, I guess like one of my biggest uh, intrinsic motivators for helping uh, entrepreneur first is that I fundamentally believe that um, too many people in the world are climbing um, a social ladder that doesn't exist, uh, but they find out too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that a lot in, in terms of the people that are around me. Um, and so EF basically allows me to structurally help, uh, structurally find, help amplify entrepreneurs to break the cycle, to, to leave their corporate jobs, to leave uh, research and really drive that impact that they wish to see in the world. Uh, do I think that everyone in the world should be an entrepreneur? No, not at all. I, I really, I think only a small percentage of the world should be an entrepreneur. Um, but having the ability to to create companies at scale structurally and being able to now do it at home in Canada and build companies that are are here um, is quite a uh, an amazing opportunity. So, mm-hmm. which is why I decided to come back. Uh, but uh, rest assured that there's a very big probability that if, if you were to call me again in five years' time, let's say it would probably be um, uh, you know across the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, can you kind of enlighten upon us, um, like what? what the environment is like in Southeast Asia. Like what is the tech scene like? like? My exposure to Southeast Asia has always strictly been in the, you know, the institutional investing world. So, you know, yeah. Singapore has a huge hub yeah. of hedge funds and I have friends there, yeah. but I think the tech world I mean, is different for sure. Yeah, of course it's different. Uh, but I think one of the fundamental differences is that, um, and I think one of the, the misconceptions about Asia is that you treat as a, like one blob. Right. Of, uh, and, and it's not at all the case. Right. So whereas like, so I, I built products for North America and I build products for Southeast Asia. And what I'll say is I'm building for products in North America. Well, yes, there are some differences from state to state, even between U.S. and Canada. Yes, user behavior is like slightly different. Um, really, it's, it's relatively the same. Uh, whereas if you go to Southeast Asia, building for a Indonesian market versus a Malaysian market versus a Vietnamese market, completely different. Uh, not just in language, but in purchasing behavior, in income status, in uh, dispensable income, in the access to internet, in the ways they spend money. It's so fundamentally different that um, if you treat it as a whole, it means that you will certainly fail, whereas it's a bit more homogenous in North America. But that also leaves room for a lot of opportunity, right? Like fragmented markets means that there's a lot of problems to solve. Um, And so being able to access a market that is massively growing, as in like Southeast Asia, um, is now at like 650, what, 700 million people. And um, especially in Indonesia, for instance, where like the population um, in the next few decades will be primarily under uh, 35, as in the majority of the population will be under 35 years old, is really exciting uh, versus the, the more aging markets in uh, more developed countries, right? Um, and so I, I, I'm not going to go into like specifically each country, but as a whole, like heuristically, you need to treat Southeast Asia as like a fragment of all different types of companies, uh, sorry, countries, and being able to leverage each and learn from each and then translate it and apply it in a different, more localized manner um, is how you can succeed. And the, I guess like the biggest uh, evidence of this is a company called Grab, uh, which eventually bought over Uber in, in Southeast Asia, right? And so Uber has the, the approach of like spray and pray of like the same approach everywhere in the world, whereas Grab really localized for each country and was able to uh, hyper-localize and, and beat out Uber. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely like 
related and like how different it really is. Like I remember I was looking at like digital advertising products in uh, Southeast Asia, and I, I think about like the messaging apps. Like Indonesia used BBM, which I was like, wow, really? That's crazy. And, and Twitter too. <laughs> yeah, and then and then I'm learning. Oh well, Taiwan uses Line, and I'm like really, why why Line? And then and even like I think other parts would then use like WhatsApp, but. North Americans would just automatically think, "Oh, why isn't everyone using Facebook and like you know yeah. WhatsApp? Why are they using these different? Yeah, why are they using different ones? Or even like e-commerce, it seems like very like spread out too. Where like Indonesia uses Tokopedia, whereas I think like Malaysia uses Shopee, and yeah. there's still like a battleground going on there. It's yeah, like, super fragmented. Yeah, um, and it's it's opportunity to to really win and defend your markets. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely like really fascinating, and I can definitely imagine why like, you probably want to go back to explore that further. I actually want to talk touch upon like the element of like what actually happens at Entrepreneur for us. I would yeah. be remiss to not talk about the investing in people side, um, as that yeah. is a big curiosity of mine. And you guys are the yeah. investors in talent, so yeah. I'm curious, like how how do you invest in talent? Like what? How does the process start? Yeah. So uh, when we say invest in talent, we really mean so, right? So what we do is we literally pay people to leave their roles in order to cover the financial costs of the program. Um, it's not a lot of money, as in like I think that would lead to adverse selection if we were to pay a bit too much, but enough to like cover uh, food and shelter, right? And so that's like the very first talent investment piece. But in terms of investing in talent, it's more so figuring out like who is likely uh, going to have an outsized chance of building an impactful company, right? And so what we do is we look for outliers within the fields that we look into. So we're not, um, you know, particular into one particular area or industry. What we're looking for are people that have the abilities to become an entrepreneur and the behaviors of an outlier that they stand out amongst their peers. And I can go into depth here, but yeah. is that where... Yeah, yeah. I'd actually like, like appreciate it if you went into depth there for yeah. sure. So, so like in terms of like the uh, behaviors we're looking for, we're looking for people who are taking counterintuitive risks, people who are uh, taking contrarian positions, uh, especially against their peers, right? So people, again, like we spoke about before, like people who don't necessarily think of it as any special, but they constantly are... Um, taking things or actions that people wouldn't typically do because the an outlier, at least we've seen from looking at our best founders, outliers are not just, they, they don't just become outliers one day. They're consistently outliers throughout their life. So from early ages onwards, they take risks um, into you know careers, they take other risks, and then they, they just consistently take uh, bets that other people won't uh, take a bet on. So that's one part of it. The second is a, a drive to achieve. So whether or not people are willing to push through obstacles and uh, you know, instead of seeing a roadblock as um, something to avoid, they run right through it. We have a saying at EF called run towards the spike, because oftentimes you see spikes in the road and, and your in intuition is to avoid it. But given that there are so many things in, in, in the business world that will kill your company, if you avoid too many, eventually you will just die because it will just catch up to you. So what we, we push for people to do is to run towards a spike, figure out whether or not it's going to kill you or not, de-risk it from the very early like get-go so that you address it right away. Um, and then we're looking for followership as well. So people who are not just able to push through barriers on their own, but are able to build and uh, build a following around them to, to go on that mission, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be professional. Um, and why does that matter is because when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to build a company, you have limited resources, limited money. Um, essentially, you need to convince people to join a mission where they'd be underpaid especially if you're trying to look for technical time, you know, um, so you're paying them under market, you're giving them a lot of ambiguity. Uh, and so you better be persuasive in order to bring them onto the journey because you're going to need to be able to build a followership in order to succeed. You can't do it on your own. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely a lot to take on. And then how, 
how does the process look? Cause like, it seems like you, you know, you're focusing on finding these outlier people, but it doesn't yeah. seem like they necessarily need to have this burning idea of a company. No, no. So the interesting thing is that um, ideas are, I mean, this is not uh, particularly new, but ideas are cheap. It's very easy to, to judge an idea. Um, and, and I think one of the things that people often um, misinterpret is once you judge an idea, you kind of equate that person's value for that idea. As in like, it's very hard to disassociate a, an idea to the person. It's very dangerous to do so because you're essentially, you know, uh, <laughs> summarizing their entire life's work into that idea, whether you think it's good or not, um, which is a, it's something that we want to avoid doing. So what we look for instead is their past uh, in terms of like, so all the things I spoke about before, but we don't bring people on, on because of their idea. We bring them on because they have an unfair advantage compared to their peers. They have the abilities and behaviors uh, that we have identified as leading indicators for being successful in the cohort. Um, so when they come onto the cohort, they, and, and generally speaking, the ideas that, that come out of EF are not based on a single person. They're based on, I guess the term is called combinatorial innovation, but essentially uh, the heuristic is, let's say you or I were to start a company, what can you or I build that no one else in the world can build or very few people in the world can build? And how do we prove that as fast as possible? As opposed mm. to just looking out at the world and observing problems, which is like the typical, I guess, like startup lore, you know, um, what we're trying to, we, we still believe that you need to observe and, and validate uh, those problems and not just, you know, assume that the problem is true. But we, we use a default of, we call it edge, but essentially it's a unfair advantage or right to win, um, something that you have that most of the people uh, in the world do not have in terms of knowledge or technical expertise or access to networks or access to anything, anything that gives you an edge. Um, and that edge should be combined with someone else's edge so that it makes it very, very difficult to copy and catch, um, catch up should you find a problem or market that's worth um, solving. Mm. And so yeah. you have, when you start out with these 50 people, how, how does the kind of uh, matching process work? You know, like, is, yes. it, is it kind of like everyone has like an internal yes. tender? So and you a lot of people, like, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would love to have built, you know, a linear regression and just assume that you, you have the exact mesh built for you right away based on your criteria, but that obviously doesn't work. Um, we would love for it to be that simple. Um, no, <laughs> so it's, it's based on a rapid experimentation. So if you think of uh, the lean startup movement towards validating like a value proposition or validating a business, uh, you're looking at like why this business would fail and trying to de-risk that as fast as possible in order to move forward. Um, think of that same approach, but instead of validating a business, you're validating a team. Um, so you're asking yourself if, again, you or I were to start a team, why would we fail? Why would we break up? Why would we like, what are the, the spikes in the road that can kill us, right? And you go out and prove that as fast as possible. Um, so for a lot of the times, the, the spikes uh, have nothing to do with business. They have everything to do with personality, culture, vision, uh, values, uh, financial situations, family situations, communication styles, like all the different reasons why you can break. Uh, you need to figure that out first before you even worry about the problem or the market because the problem of the market will change, 100% will change because you're going to pivot in and out of different conversations with customers, but the team hopefully won't. Um, and so what you're trying to figure out in a very short amount of time is who is the best co-founder in the pool for me mm -hmm. and best not being one who's perfect. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Uh, best being someone who has um, the least amount of compromises because for founding a company with anyone, just like finding a partner, <laughs> will always have some kind of compromise and uh, you're optimizing for the least amount of compromise, but you can't assume that they're a fit until you try it out. So essentially what you're trying to do is try working with people as fast as possible um, and if it doesn't work out, break up and form a new team. So that's, I guess, like the uh, an, another counterintuitive thing about what we do. 
um, is that we build uh, an environment and we design the, the program in such a way that it provides um, trust and an ability to break, sorry, form and break teams as fast as possible. So oftentimes people will form two or three companies before they find, sorry, co-founding relationships before they find their optimal co-founder. Mm, gotcha. And so then everyone kind of go at their own pace of trying to, but still all in the mission of rapidly testing. And rapidly testing and, and providing uh, and, and testing the relationship, right? And, and a lot of people ask, like, how do you actually test it? You test it by making it real. Um, so if you, you or I, again, I'm just using it as a base, like yeah, were to yeah. go out and test a, like a, you know, a hypothesis that we have, let's go out and talk to hundreds of customers. Chances are um, in talking to hundreds of customers, you're going to face a lot of rejection. You're going to face a lot of uncertainty and uh, invalidations of what you're trying to propose. When you see your co-founder react to re rejections um, and knows, it becomes very real, very fast, and you see how people react react to failure. Mm. The reaction to failure is very indicative of how you will, how strong you are as a as a team. Because if you're a strong team, you take that failure as like with a growth mindset on, and you're like, okay, what do we learn from this, and how do we move faster? If you're not a strong team, you would say like. Shh. Oh, sorry, I can't swear. Sorry. No, you can um, swear. Like, this is a okay. It's fine. <laughs> okay, so uh, you say shit. Uh, you know, this is not working and you you spiral and you go into like a negative uh you know downward spiral and you you don't really get out of that um and so that's a strong indicator that you should break up as fast as possible mm. typically in life uh breaking up with your co-founder is really really tricky um but within ef you have uh, the chance to within the same hour find another co-founder to form up and you're encouraged to um, we have a we have a culture of transparency around breakups. A, a, like essentially, when when a breakup is um, announced, or when we find out that there's a breakup, it's announced uh, publicly to everyone on the cohort. So anyone else who's thinking about potentially forming with you is now like, oh, that person's available. So I might break uh... up as well. And so you you create like a and you celebrate it, right? Because breaking up with the wrong uh, co-founder means that you've just saved your save yourself a ton of pain, a ton of sorrow, a ton of time. Um, and so if you celebrate breakups as fast as possible, um, it creates this culture of like everyone is here for the same reason. They're all trying to find the optimal pair. So it's in your best interest that if you are in a bad team and you know you're in a bad team or not even a bad team, if you're in a suboptimal team, it's in your best interest to break. And that's a very weird thing to do. But we've been able to we've been able to institutionalize it um, over the last few years. Got it. So it seems like it, you're teaching people to choose the option of like it's what Derek Server says. It's either a hell yes or a no. Like offer the no at most times and be really picky with the hell yes yes when you form with the right person what we often hear is that people are like uh yeah it's it's a bit of a honeymoon phase but the, the heuristic is like you um basically can't um so so one you can't see it's like it's like uh like an amazing reaction isn't like holy crap like i found like the person that's that's one way of seeing it the other way is that like um, you are more productive with that person than without that person. Because if you're less productive with that person when, than when you're on your own, that's a really negative uh, indicator. And so being able to like gauge that in a, bi a non-biased way is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. and Which is why you need people to kind of like coach you and probe um, on the outside. Right. And so from your experience, like when you see uh, the successful uh, co-founding teams, like what are, are there like distinct um, characteristics or what like yeah. factors kind of shine out as like, yeah, like yeah. You, you always see this as like the key factor that yeah. makes a so, so team. So one, they're productive um, and productivity might seem like a, like an obvious thing, but like productivity that compounds over time and becomes more productive is very rare. And that's indicative of a strong co-founding team. Two, they have a large amount of respect for each other's disciplines. So 
um, the I guess like the the wrong approach that a lot of our uh, cohort members fall into in the first few weeks is that they trend they tend to go for people that are like them. They tend to go for people that uh, are familiar that have a lot in common. The problem with that is that you're going to step on each other's toes because you're too alike. You're too similar. You have too many overlapping skills. Um, what you should look for is the opposite. Someone who is fundamentally different from you. Someone who is so uh, like like mutually exclusive in terms of your skill set that like you're amazed and like you're amazed by what they're able to do. Um, but the problem is that because they come from such a different world, oftentimes the communication is not necessarily like easy. It's not. It's not. Um, because there's less familiarity between the two people, it, it could be a bit like awkward. Um, and so the, the goal there is not to find someone that you like, it's to find someone that you respect and are impressed by as fast as possible. And so it's a very different mindset than, than trying to, you know, make a friend. Got it. And so what about like individual character traits? Is there like anything that kind of pops up as like, yeah, everyone kind of who you've seen succeed has... Yeah, I mean, like, it's the same as asking, like, what are successful traits of a CEO, right? As mm. in, like, it'll be really dependent on the co-founding team. But generally speaking, like, because of the structure of EF, um, so this is not particular to entrepreneurs. This is entrepreneurs on EF. Right. They need to, one, uh, be very high achieving and, and have very high, I guess, like, personal exceptionalism, as in, like, they think highly of themselves, but paired with a lot of self-awareness mm -hmm. so a lot of self-awareness of their weaknesses of their vulnerabilities of where they need to have someone compliment them but at the same time have a very high conviction that they are strong in another area because if you're someone who's like very meek and modest which is uh, true of a lot of um, academics and so, so we have to coach people a lot on this they need to really go out with their strengths because if you think of like um, joining a room filled with 50 people and you're trying to like triage who is on your shortlist if someone doesn't come up as impressive it's very very hard to like put them on your shortlist right and so being able to like be super strong so we, we have a value around around this which is like strong belief but weekly held um, mm -hmm. So you have the strong belief to put yourself out there around what you believe in, but also have the humility and the ego or the awareness of ego to let go if you're wrong kind of thing. Um, and so being able to model both at the same time is very difficult. Um, but uh, I guess like the, the best traits uh, of someone who is able to take advantage of the environment. Got it. And I'm, and I'm sure like you, you know, many different, you know, experiments and projects would have probably had to be done to, for you guys to, yes. you know, have these learnings. And so I'm curious what, yeah. What projects like didn't work out? Like, what are some examples of you know things where you had a hypothesis? Well, there's of... a lot more that didn't work out that didn't work, right? <laughs> what um, are some like that pop into your mind from your experiments where you're like you know we thought this would actually be a game changer and people would you know be able to like, find each other like, better and like they'd be more effective, but yeah, it just didn't I mean, work out. It's, I mean, there are hundreds of examples of this, so I, I don't like like I probably wouldn't help to identify just one. I think I'll identify themes. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. One of the themes is is going back to what we talked about before, which is like assuming that the problem exists. A lot of um, people, especially coming from the tech world, if they're uh, coming from a technical background, they have a lot of solutions, but they, they treated uh, their solution as like a hammer looking for a nail as opposed to identifying which nail to address first, right? Um, and so a problem, a solution to a problem is not what we're going for. We need, you need to validate that the problem exists first. Um, and oftentimes it's quite hard to do this because you, you know, you spent the last few months dreaming up a, of a world that should exist. You come up with this idea and like, you're emotionally tied to this idea. And when you're attacked on it, you want to defend it. You want to prove the person wrong. You want to, there's a lot of ego and emotion tied to like building a company. Um, and so being able to like tie, uh, sorry, 
like put your ego away and say like okay like what 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 are the spikes in this and, and prove myself wrong uh, or right so that's one um another is around like how to i guess coming from different backgrounds if you optimize for the idea and not the team member it becomes a very very uh as in like if you're choosing a co-founder primarily because of the idea as in like this is what you want to work on but you don't talk about all the different things that we just spoke about before right it's usually a recipe for disaster because you're, you're forming a company around an idea and not around the team and oftentimes uh, we need to remind people that like um, especially with the world of venture especially early uh, early stage deals like people are not looking for ideas they're looking for the team because they very well know that the, the idea will change um, the problem might change. Uh, the solution might change or will change, but the team won't. And so if you don't believe in the team, you're screwed, no matter how good the idea is. Um, and so having the ability to form the best team possible is what we're trying to do, given that they do have to, you know, go prove that a problem or a market exists. Um, but going idea first is not, um, it's a very common mistake a lot of our founders will make. Mm -hmm. And yeah. for, for you personally, like, it, do you see, um, a future where you will eventually want to join the cohort and become um, entrepreneur yourself, like yeah, in that I mean, realm? yes. Um, I, I think there there are two ways to answer this question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I've also become an expert idea killer. Um, so it is uh, not, I guess, like the proudest trait that I have. But it it's it, interestingly when you work with entrepreneurs and your goal is to be devil's advocate all the time. Like my my job is not to tell entrepreneurs what to do. My job is to basically poke holes at their thinking in order to de-risk their, their, their business, right? So like if you're assuming that this is a world that you want to build, what are the assumptions there? What are the risks there? And how do you prove and de-risk it as fast as possible? So my, my job there is not to tell you what to do. My job is to be a thought partner to identify the risks and help you mitigate the most important risks. But in doing so, I, I will, if for any idea that I come up with, I will always have a hundred reasons why it won't work. And so uh, you need to have a bit of like, disbelief in order to be an entrepreneur and i think i need to take a bit of a step away from ef before i'm able to do that uh, <laughs> but the goal is definitely to um to become an entrepreneur again absolutely got it and something else in, on your journey that i wanted to kind of touch upon uh, out of just pure curiosity again is i noticed that you did seth golden's uh, alt mba and yeah. you're the third person i've met who've completed it but i'm i'm curious for you yeah. What made you want to go through the program? And actually, before you go through it, do you mind explaining like briefly to the audience what the program is? Um, if yeah. you're a Seth Godin fan, you'd know. But if you're not, you won't. So Yeah. Um, Out-MBA is a very unusual thing. Basically, it's a four-week uh, boot camp where you go through um, a life transformation, which sounds buzzwordy, uh, but it's, it's true. So basically, you are given four weeks to ship 12 different challenges. And unlike most MBA courses that are curriculum driven, there's no curriculum, there's no video, there's no uh, like course. All of it is uh, project driven and uh, accountability between the people that you're, you're working with. And so it's, it's, a, it's a type of experience where like you, you get out what you put in kind of thing. Um, and all the projects are usually geared towards a skill set that um, is super important to becoming a leader. So whether it's about uh, EQ, whether it's about uh, leadership or stakeholder management or managing emotions or managing feedback or whatever it is, like it's all the hard stuff that like you never get taught at school that you end up having to learn on the go uh, or you read from books. Um, so it's, it's that kind of experience but amplified by having accountability partners that push you, challenge you throughout four weeks to ship 12 different things that will essentially stretch your muscle of what you can do within that four weeks. Cause given it's not, um, it's, it's 
it's part-time as in like it's to be done while you're working and everyone is like a high achiever working like whatever amount of hours a week and so you're doing this on top of your work week so like everyone like really is like stretched during the week but it's able to like help you realize how much you're capable of and it, it increases the muscle of shipping meaning getting your work out there and getting feedback um and uh like just getting getting your stuff out um so Probably not the best description of Alt MBA that I, you know, uh, but it is definitely something that uh, influenced me a lot. So I did it last year while I was considering whether or not I would come back to Canada, actually. And that was um, one of the things I wanted to work out during the program. And uh, I'm, I'm in Canada, so you can probably guess that it had a bit of an impact on my life. Yeah. And, and so I want to kind of dig into like, what was the hypothesis behind um, how this program could help you make that decision? Um, it had been primarily because I had reached out to other people who have gone through it and they gave me a bit of a cryptic answer as well. So what I said probably sounds a bit cryptic. <laughs> it's not like, um, it's not like a cult or anything. Uh, it's not like Apple, I guess, uh, but it is very much, um, like in life when you have, um, someone to hold you accountable and someone who challenges you like a coach, um, and someone who believes in you, you, you tend to be able to do a lot more than you're capable of. And if you, uh, I, I mean, this is personally for me, like the best bosses I've had in, in my life are not ones that have told me what to do, but simply have believed in me and challenged me to do more. Um, and so if you had that opportunity uh, to, to work with dozens of different people who are all in not the same boat, but different boats, but trying to like figure out, uh, are usually in a transition of some sort, um, it creates like a, an environment where you just get to feel inspired about people um, and, and the challenge is real, right? So like, I, I won't go into like super depth as to what the projects were, but one of them was basically like, what are some of the fundamental beliefs that you believe in um, that most of the world does not agree with you on? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you uh, like, and just talk about it. And, and you, you're in a, you know, a session with four or five other people who will challenge you, push you on it. Um, and it, it gets into a very deep conversation that helps you, I guess, like identify a lot of different things about how you work and how you influence and how do you, again, like it would probably sound super cryptic when I listen to this later on, um, but it was just basically four weeks of me pushing myself, having other people push me as well um, when they had no real requirement to, it was all done out of pure want and desire to, to impact and to drive change for yourself and other people. And it's just like an amplifying, like rising of all, like the, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of mentality. Um, and it helped me make uh, a pretty big decision in my life. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, it, it, as you, as you, you refer to like it being like, yeah, like, I think there's like, it might sound cryptic, but it's, it might also be like, it's so powerful. Like you got to just have to go, you have to do it to understand yeah. it, <laughs> that kind yeah. of phenomena. Yeah. But yeah, I think we, we kind of covered a lot of various angles in, uh, today's conversation. And, you know, I think I definitely learned a lot about like, how ES like looks at people and how you guys think about investing in talent. And I appreciate that perspective uh you provided yeah. and kind of as we kind of get to the final uh leg of this interview is is there something like you kind of wish you you kind of touched upon that you didn't um in regards to like the career or maybe like ef how you guys run things um if not that's cool but if there was anything you want to kind of leave my audience with as kind of like ending thoughts um i mean i had I don't have anything off the top of my head, but like ending thoughts in, in terms of like what, what I would want them to know kind of thing. Or anything like you feel like, you know, you kind of wanted to elaborate a little further on that I might have failed as an interviewer kind of digging into. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
not off the top of my head, but I, I feel like if I were to leave a few, uh, given uh, the nature of your audience, uh, it might be worth talking about like, um, I guess like if I were to summarize a few lessons that I've learned, but like maybe that comes off as a bit entitled and, and pushy in terms of like- <laughs> Well, I'm actually, I'd, I'd love to learn. So share, share it with me. Okay. Um, so I think like one, um, I, I don't know who wrote this quote, but one thing I've been trying to uh, really live by is if you are not embarrassed by the person you were six months ago, you're not pushing yourself enough or you're not mm. creating enough opportunities to make yourself uncomfortable. And so I've been trying to do that as fast as possible. And so um, one of like the big learnings I've had over the last little bit, especially as we like go through COVID um, is that I mean, COVID has, for, for those that are lucky enough to stay home, um, it, it has been a, a time of introspection and a time of reflection. And I think one of the biggest ones for me is that like, um, I'm sure by by listening to podcasts about people who have created some kind of impact in the world, you will have set a pretty high bar in terms of like what's possible for people. But I, I think it's super important to define. So this is a bit of a roundabout way, but um, I, I think it's super important for you to define your own definition of excellence and your own definition of success. And I think too many people are uh, worried about the output of their um, their energy and their time as opposed to worrying about the input. Um, and so what I mean by that is that instead of looking for that job title and instead of looking for that, you know, uh, that dollar amount that you want to have impacted or create or have a salary on, like worry more so about what are the inputs you want to put in in order to get to where you want to get to. And oftentimes you'll probably discover that where you end up going was not actually where you had planned. Uh, that's kind of like the, the beauty of, of life. But if you worry about your inputs, you uh, are constantly day to day trying to get better. And if you do that, the compounding effect of like 1% better every single day makes means like six months from now, you'll change quite a bit and you'll look back on your time and be like, holy shit, like I can't believe that was me six months ago. I, I do believe that like I, the, the some of the decisions I made six months ago, I'm super embarrassed about. And so um, <laughs> to me, that's a good thing. And if yeah. you continue living that way, you're going to have a pretty, pretty ridiculous roller coaster life, but it'll be worth living. Oh, I love yeah. that. I, I love that learning. And actually, I should add like, so if, you know, if someone from my audience listens and they are interested and they want to think about joining EF, how, how can yeah. they find the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, um, pretty easy. Uh, we have a rolling um, application process and we run programs every six months. If you just go to joinef.com, and this is not just for people in Canada, but we run programs in six countries. Um, so pretty easy to do so. And um, if you're within our persona group where we've hired a pretty amazing team and we've probably already reached out to a number of you. Uh, so we're trying to get to, to know people as fast as possible, especially the people we're looking for. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Frankie, thanks so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your wisdom, your experience and all your learnings with myself and my guests. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Take care.